It was amazing. I celebrated my grandmother's 90th birthday. So all of us yep. flew in. It was so, so special. So special. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Okay. So I see some new faces, which is really exciting. Um, you picked a really interesting class to join, I must say. It's a little uh, technical today, but um, it's always good. I, um, I was teaching my community Tanya class on Sunday, and we were talking about the concept of the power of studying Torah and how if you want to take time to connect to Hashem and become one with him, the, the best and most effective way to do that is to study Torah. Because when we study Torah, we are connecting to um, Hashem's will itself. Mitzvot are like an expression of God's will, but Torah is God's will. And when we study, we are connecting with that directly. And we were talking and we went off on these little tangents, but what we talked about as well was like, you know, in, um, there's so many things in Torah that we don't always understand, like why we do it and all the intricacies involved. And there's sometimes it's just so like burdensome, you know? And I, we were, I, we were talking about, I was saying, I was like, you know, we live in a generation where we don't like to be told what to do, right? And we have to understand everything we're doing. It's, we don't, we don't just go with like, cause God said so. This generation is not good at that, right? And we have to like, no, why, why should I? right? Why should I? And how does this work? And it doesn't work for me and all that kind of stuff. That's the generation we live in. And, and, and that's our generation's challenge. It's a real, it's a real thing. Like, and we have to honor that. But as we were learning this concept of just studying Torah and just the mere study of the Torah, you don't even have to really understand it. You don't, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but just the mere act of studying Torah connects you and makes you one with Hashem. I said, maybe if we have a perspective, maybe it takes the sting out of not always understanding. If we can like, for one second, put that aside and focus not on why we do it and how we do it and you know all those other details, but just focus on the fact that when we study and when we learn about God's will, we are connecting with him in the most epic way, then maybe we don't, like get so sidetracked by all everything else. And we can just focus on the fact that it doesn't matter what we're learning. It doesn't matter what we're saying. At this moment, this hour that you dedicated to studying, what you're doing in this hour, you may not feel it on such a grand level. It doesn't matter. It's happening. So this hour that we're taking to study Torah is you totally emerging and becoming one with God. I'm just with my little introduction because the, some of the things that we're going to be learning in the next little couple chapters or the next couple classes about fasting and about all these things that feel sometimes like, why, why do I need to know this? Or what do I, what are we doing? And, you know, trust me, if it was up to me, part of me was like, should we just skip this section? You know, like, you know, part of me is like, oh, I don't know. Like, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to know this? It's so like not it's not the fun juicy stuff you know but my other part of me that one was like 
No, it's in here for a reason. And we're going to get something really special out of it, I'm sure. And even if we don't, we are taking this opportunity to study this because this is what Hashem wants us to study right now. Like this is what, what we're learning. So um, all that to say, we are going to pick up where we left off a couple classes ago, which was talking about, um, well, the bigger the bigger topic is about how fasting fits in the atonement process, right? But then we um, went off and talked about the, the, the fact that really fasting is taking the place of what? Of a certain type of sacrifice that happened in the temple, right? What type of sacrifice? It's the carbon ola. The sacrifice that you burns all the way up to God and is done, and you give the sacrifice. And what we learned last class was that what's the purpose of the sacrifice is to give a gift to Hashem. It's after the atonement process, after the repentance and all that return and all that stuff. We want to become um, like. Uh, desirable in God's eyes again. We want God to want to hang out with us, right? And we talked about this whole concept of like, yeah, you know, you can forgive someone, but it doesn't mean you want to hang out with them, right? You can forgive them and be like, I forgive you, but like stay away, you know? Like I don't have to have a relationship with you. And that's valid. You, it, it, It's a valid forgiveness to, to do that, to say, I forgive you for what you did, but like, we're not going to be great friends right anymore right but that's not the relationship that we want to have with Hashem right we want to have like a loving close mutual respectful relationship so so how do we do that with this sacrifice after all the like technical obligations of return and repentance and atonement we give this extra gift to like you know get us in our God's good graces again so that was in the time of the temple. So here we are. We don't have a temple. We don't have sacrifices. So what did we end off saying last class? And we touched upon it. And this is where we're going to pick up now is that fasting takes place of that sacrifice. So we did, we did say there are a few other ways that fasting was used, but it's not common and it's not something that we really do nowadays. And there's another way that um, that fasting is this like is this post atonement gift, right? Um, and it's instead of that burnt offering that we that we were able to do in times of the temple, right? And the Tanya says that fasting fulfills this role. Okay, so when we finish this atonement process, there's there's this additional thing that can be done, and it's fasting. And we're going to understand why fasting is a substitute for a sacrifice. We're going to understand when it was used a few generations ago. And we are going to talk about how in Kabbalah, the Arizal applied fasting and taught to his students. And that's what we're going to cover today. We are not going to be, guys, if you remember, like I'm, I'm really kind of learning this with you. Like I've never really learned Igaris HaTshuva in its full capacity. So I don't know where the Tanya is going in the sense of like in our generation, 
yet. We'll get there, okay? But I don't know, because I still think that fasting in this generation is still not used often, even in this capacity. So I'm curious to know like where we're gonna end up with this. But right now we're gonna be focused on the concept and the idea of this fasting and how, how, how it can be used and how it was used. Um, not even so long ago, we're talking about Baal Shem Tov, Altarebbe's times, okay? So 200 years ago, 300 years ago, we were still using this idea, but we still have a while left. So there's still a lot to talk about. So, okay, so the, here's where we are. So now, um, so we know that after the temple was destroyed, we do not have this opportunity to this, to do this sacrifice that elicits favor in Hashem's eyes, right? So fasting replaces that sacrifice. In chapter one, oh, sorry, chap, uh, what chapter are we on? Good question. Um, we are in chapter two, um, chapter two, section two. We might even be able to finish this chapter today. We'll see. <laughs> Shocking, I know. Um, okay, so at the end of chapter one, we did talk about a different way fasting was used, right? Um, and that was part of the chuba process. The in part of the intrinsic part of the chuba process, fasting was used, and it was um, it would assist with the atonement, right? If you were people would use it, um, that if they they would use it as part of the suffering category, right? We learned back in chapter one that certain sins require suffering to get atoned for. And if there were certain people who were very worried or very in tune and didn't want to, um, were worried about the suffering that would befall them, right? And so they, they decided that they would take it uh, into their own hands and they would afflict upon themselves, you know, um, what was the forms of affliction, right? And one of those things was fasting and they were hoping that that would take care of the suffering that that needed to happen to get atoned. But we learned how that didn't really work so much because Hashem was the one that needed to give you the right kind of suffering for the right kind of thing, right? So it didn't really, it wasn't, I mean, for certain people it worked and they were able to, to do it, but it wasn't really something that was practical and we that we really adapted. Here, we're talking about tshuva as the post-atonement gift, right? And um, kind of after the atonement process. The atonement process is you're done, it's taken care of, and now you want to not only be forgiven, but get back in God's good graces. So the Talmud says, so the ta Tanya is going to prove from the Talmud that we can use fasting as a substitute for the sacrifice. And here's the proof that the Gemara, that Tanya uses from the Gemara, okay? I'm going to read to you um, from the Gemara a little quote directly from the Talmud. And it says, okay, when Rav Sheshus would sit fasting, after he had prayed, he would say the following, okay? Master of the universe, you know that when the Holy Temple stood, a person who had sinned would bring an offering right, of an entire animal. The priest would only offer up its fat and blood, yet that was enough for atonement to be granted to the person. Now listen carefully. 
Now I have been sitting and fasting. So my fat and blood have diminished. May it be pleasing before you that my diminished fat and blood from fasting should be considered as a sacrifice to you on the altar. And may I find favor in your eyes. So you see the logic, what's happening here? What happens when you gave a sacrifice? What was being burnt to God? The fat and the blood of the animal, right? So now we have this great Rav who's fasting um, to gain favor in God's eyes. And he said, okay, so just like the sacrifice, fat and blood were burned to um, God. When I fast, what's getting burned? I'm burning fat and my and I'm weaker, right? My blood is not as vibrant. And that is my sacrifice to you, Hashem. And may it find favor in your eyes, right? And this is another idea of like, you know, when you really, this is not necessarily about the fact that um, the fasting is suffering. I want you to think of it as a different perspective. It's like, you know, when you really love someone, you're willing to sacrifice for them something that's really important to you, right? So think of it as that. Like, we love Hashem so much. We, we want to incur favor in his eyes. And it's so important to us that we're willing to give up our sustenance, right? Not forever, right? Because we want to stay alive in this world, but we're willing to give up our food and our drink, the things that give us life, the things that sometimes we indulge in, sometimes, you know, it's pleasure. And we want to give that up for Hashem, something that's important, right? That we're sending Hashem the message that he's important enough to us that we're willing to give some of our fat and blood to. Okay, any questions so far? I knew, I saw your face. I knew it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hear you. Okay, sorry. Oh. Can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, that part that you just read with Rav, what's his name? His name is Rav Sheshas. Okay, so did he, did Rav Sheshan, uh, was he the like the first one who started this fasting thing or not? So that's a very good question. Um, I don't know for sure. I don't think so. I don't think he was the first one. I think he was the one to kind of maybe, maybe equate it with the car carbon or really just verbalize like, okay. this is why we're doing this. But I, it's a very good question. I will find out. I'm going to write it down right now. If he because it's it's so smart it, it's so smart of him it's so intelligent to right. you know that he associated that this type of fasting how it would go with you know the blood and the and the burning the fat compared to 100 animal it's when i read it i was fantastic. like fasting like we didn't, i never thought to think of the fasting in that way right? And comparing it to the car carbonos, the sacrifices in that way. But when he said it, it's true. It's like, oh, like that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Like that's a very um, logical substitution to something that we can't do anymore, right? So I don't, um, I don't see you anymore. I don't know why. Do you see me? Does anyone else see me? 
I'm yeah. seeing everybody and you, but I'm seeing me in big. You know oh, what I mean? You're it's, speaking. Maybe when you're speaking, it, you. Yeah, but then after that, it's like doesn't go away. I don't know what happened. Maybe there's um, I'm not so good at this, but maybe there's a, a setting that puts um that says speaker. Isn't there a setting that says speaker? Yeah. And it's speaker, it, it's in the top right corner, it says view, and then there's speaker and gallery. Oh, okay, yeah. So maybe if you go to gallery, you'll be able to see, or if you just want to see Javi, you could pin her. Now I'm seeing everybody. I want to see Javi. Okay, I'll, I'll make this better. Okay. Okay, so um, so this is why we, we see that harmonic sages would carry out multiple fasts, even um, over small matters, okay? How do we know that, that um, they would use, that, that fasting was used even for small matters, right? Because it's small, like they would even use fasting for things that didn't actually require atonement. Um, and, since fasting is not a core element of tshuva and the, what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you don't only have to use fasting following uh, a transgression that you needed to atone for because we see that we're going to give examples of some great rabbis who really weren't in the wrong, like they weren't, they wouldn't fall under the category of sin, but because they were so holy and they were so great that these little things to them were very big. So they weren't really punishable or they weren't really transgressions, but they would use fasting as a way to kind of like atone in their own way for something that they felt or even God felt that they should have done better. So for the for the lay people, you wouldn't even. Wow, that was a bird. Um, for the lay people, um, you wouldn't even think like this was a transgression. But for somebody of us, like for a sage or a Talmudic sage, they would need for themselves to use fasting as a way to like get closer to God, right? So. What are some examples of this, of minor violations um, in the area of thought, speech, or action, right? Minor violations that the our sages would sometimes transgress and would use fasting as um, a way of reconnecting with Hashem. Let me just make sure I didn't miss anything. Okay. So we have a few examples and they're very interesting. We might even, they're very interesting. The first example is of Alazar ben Azariah. He's pretty famous. Have you, um, most of us probably heard of him, right? Alazar ben Azariah. Um, we just read about him. I didn't, don't we read about him in the Haggadah? I feel like we say his name in the Haggadah. We do, yes, right? that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, he's um, in there. He's in there. Okay, so this is very interesting. So he 
disagreed with the majority of the sages on a particular ruling. What was the ruling? It was whether or not a cow was allowed to go out on Shabbos with a strap between its horns. Okay, so what's, what's the basis of this? On Shabbos, it's prohibited to carry in a public domain, right? Um, and you can't, all, and you also cannot use your animal to carry for you, right? You say, oh, well, I can't carry, but I can let my animal carry for you. You cannot do that. But wearing clothing or jewelry is permitted. That's not considered carrying, right? So the sages would argue whether a strap that's worn between the cow's horns is considered an item worn and therefore is it permitted to be, is it permitted for the cow to be wearing it on Shabbos or forbidden? Okay, so here we're going to get a little bit of a Gemara type argument insight. Now, Rabbi Lazar ben said it was acceptable, but all the other sages said that it was not acceptable. So he was in the minority. He was the only one that thought that the strap kind of resembles either clothing or jewelry, and he said it was acceptable. But everyone else said it wasn't acceptable. What what happened in the times of the Talmud? Like you went by majority. So the ruling was that a cow could not wear the strap on Shabbos because the majority um, of the sages was, had that opinion. And that's now the ruling. So now it became whether or not what God had intended, God gave the power to the sages to make the final call, right? So at, at that point, when the majority of the sages think, think a certain way, that becomes the ruling and then it becomes prohibited, okay? So the story continues. On one occasion, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah's neighbor's cow went out carrying the strap, okay? So, and he sees the cow with the strap, but, and Al-Lazar ben Azariah does not protest and he does not, say to his neighbor that it's prohibited. But is that cow actually carrying the strap? It's, it's, I don't know. Uh, listen, I don't know these exact <laughs> details of this law. Like I really don't, but well, we're uh, learning it because it's in here right now and we're learning it for a particular point, right? So well, basically- he, the cow has a strap on his horns. At the end of the day, the ruling was that it's prohibited. Rabbi Lazar ben saw his neighbor with the cow with the strap. Because it was prohibited, he should have said something, and he didn't because to him, his opinion was that it was permissible. So when, so because he failed to support his colleagues, right, he fasted, and the Tal Talmud says till his teeth went black. That's how much he fasted. Okay, so let's dig in a little bit, right? It is a mitzvah to protest your friend's sinful behavior, right? So when you see somebody doing something wrong and you know that it's wrong, you are supposed to say something, 
We're not going to get into the intricacies involved with that, right? Like how you're supposed to say something when, if, if, if you can do it in a way that's not shameful, right? Like there's many rules and regulations on how to address that. And also remember, it has to come from the heart for it to go to the heart. So you can only say something if you know how to do it properly. But Vanilla Benazario was in that category where he could have said something, right? And he could have, and he, well, he should have um, supported his colleagues ruling that it was prohibited. But it's interesting because I guess he struggled with that concept because what do you do in a situation where you don't consider that behavior to be sinful. The whole time, Rabbi Lezer ben Azari, he's like, I actually think it's permitted. So do I go and tell this woman that her cow is carrying because everyone else thinks so, even though I don't think so, right? Um, so in his eyes, the cow and his neighbor wasn't violating the Shabbos, right? And therefore he didn't say anything. Because in his eyes, it was like, in my eyes, that's prohibit. It's permissible. But late, only later did he realize that there was he had an oversight, and the oversight was that he should have supported his colleagues' ruling, especially because that became the majority ruling, and therefore he fasted. So this is a small matter, an example of a small matter that Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah um, fasted to atone for, even though no real violation occurred, right? He didn't do anything really wrong. And even in his eyes, the cow and the, and the neighbor weren't doing anything wrong either, right? But he was on a, on a high enough level to realize that he, failed to do something that maybe he should have done. And he used fasting to reconcile for that. Okay? So, and another example from the Talmud from Rabbi Yehoshua, it was also about a disagreement. It doesn't tell us what the disagreement was about, but it was about a disagreement from the school of Shammai. You ever heard of Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel? A lot of times, there was Hillel and Shammai, and they had very opposing ideas and thoughts most of the time, right? And um, Rabbi Yoshua said, I'm ashamed of your words, school of Shammai. And because he said those words, not a sin, but because he said those words and it was shameful, he also fasted to rectify for that. And then the last example that the Talmud gives is Rav Huna, who was putting on tefillin and realized that his one of the straps of the tefillin was flipped around and not on the right way. And he, and it says for him, he fasted 40 times. It's not a transgression for your tefillin strap to be in the wrong direction, but for someone, so for Rav Huna, who was on that level and on that consciousness and had that much sensitivity, you realize he doesn't have to atone for the sin. He's not doing teshuva because there's not much to do teshuva about. It's not a transgression, but he's using fasting as a way to reconcile for that little bit of distance that, that, that um, caused in his relationship with Hashem.
Was okay. he a tzaddik? Yes. So tzaddik also make mistakes. <laughs> All these examples that we just gave were of tzaddikim. Tzaddikim make mistakes, but they're not transgressions. And by no means are these transgressions by any means, right? Moshe Rabbeinu made mistakes, right? Like, but if if you were to, are these mistakes, they're mistakes, maybe they could have done better, but in no, in no, in, in no uncertain terms, could you um, categorize that as a sin, as a transgression? It is a sensitivity to be on such a level to have that sensitivity to, um, that every little thing is so like, perfect and so sensitive and so um intentional that's what I guess I was, that's why they're they're tzaddikim and that's why they're tzaddikim so for for me I'm going to just use myself as an example like those things are never going to fall under my radar right <laughs> even, like at all right and it's like not even gonna make a blip in my life right? Because I'm busy doing real sins. <laughs> but, but the, for these people, like these are things that for them was unacceptable. And so this is where the fasting came in, right? So practically speaking, so how do you know how many fasts we carry out nowadays for this post-atonement gift that we want to give God? How do we know? It says fast. How do we know how long, how many times, right? And when I say nowadays, I'm referring to Altarebbe's times, okay? We're not talking about nowadays, nowadays quite yet. We're not there yet. Um, and for what? And for what? And for what? Exactly. But remember, you could fast for actual transgressions, but only after the atonement and chuva process is done, right? right? So we're not using fasting as the atonement process. We're using fasting as that extra gift, okay? So to, to clarify and understand more on, you know, the actual practicality of the fasting and how many fasts and whatever, we the Tanya quotes from Rabbi Yitzchak Gloria. He was a 16th century Kabbalist who actually, who was our result. Okay, um, so he was, you know, the Kabbalist. And the Arizal would advise his students, based on Kabbalah, the specific number of fasts for various different sins, transgressions, or mistakes. Okay, um, and it's actually very interesting how he did it. We'll talk about it in a second. It's very Kabbalistic, of course. But we want to stress here, the, the Tanya stresses that these are the Arizal's teachings, because at first glance, um, we, when we're talking about, when we're quoting the Gemara, right, and we're talking about all these great rabbis who are using fasting, and then now we're quoting the Arizal, and the Arizal students are nowhere near our level, right? They're, they're holy, holy people. And this is who the, the Arizal is talking to. So the Tanya wants us to understand that, first of all, we um, 
we quote the Kabbalah because it's interesting that fasting, the talks of fasting stayed, it went from the Gemara to the Kabbalah, but there's no talk of fasting in the Rambam or in the Code of Jewish Law. Like, why isn't it in there, right? And so the Altarba, by telling us that the, the, that the Arizal taught his students the Kabbalah of fasting is to teach us that, yes, it started, originated in the Gemara, and now it's in Kabbalah, because it's not something that um, that's, it takes a long time to, to kind of get to this place where fasting is even on your radar. It's not a halacha, right? It's not code of Jewish law. The Rambam doesn't talk about this. It goes from, from Gemara to Kabbalah because this is a process, right? This is not something that we're obligated in. It's not something that needs to happen. It's not part of any form of code of Jewish law. There's no halacha that says you need to fast to atone for your sins, right? Remember, this is an extra gift. So that is, um, so the, the Tande wants to emphasize that, that this the practical application of fasting is based in Kabbalah. A lot, many times when we have practical applications, they're from halacha, right? That's where we usually get practical applications from. But in this fasting, the practical application is, is based in Kabbalah, okay? Um, and so this is something that the Ariza would advise his students based on Kabbalah. But the Tanya doesn't want you to think that just because the Arizal students were very great, it doesn't apply to us or it's not relevant to us, right? It is, it could be relevant. It does apply to us, um, but it's, it took a long time for fasting to reach like mainstream awareness. It wasn't just like an automatic trajectory, right? It took, took Kabbalah for to make fasting a little bit more accessible and mainstream, okay? So practically, the Arizal um, basically would advise a fasting protocol for any type of sin, even sins that were not punishable by death or did not need excommunication or did not need like this great big atonement. Fasting could apply to any transgression or any mistakes. Why? Why? Because what's the purpose of the fasting? You tell me. To give to God. Yes. One word. It's a gift, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter how grand or how uh, diabolical <laughs> your sin was, right? It just matters whether you want to to provide that extra gift to Hashem, okay? So, um, for a, this is this was very cool. This is a very cool read. This one point, it says in in the result for anger. Anger is not a specific sin. Anger could be the catalyst and could lead to a lot of sins, but anger is not a sin onto itself. But in the result, talks about. If you give way, if you succumb to anger, the Arizal advised 151 fasts. 
Okay, that just goes to show how detrimental anger is in our life, right? Anger is in the direct, in the, in the first book of Tanya, anger, we talk about it there. Anger is a direct manifestation of what? Your ego, right? Oh. Because why do you get angry? Think about any scenario that you got angry, whether you're right or wrong, vindicated, whatever. Why do you get angry? How dare they dot, dot, dot. How dare you talk to me that way? How dare you treat me that way? How right? Like it's all when our e ego gets in the way. So an overinflation of ego leads to anger. Anger, what, and, what, and what, what do we know also from Tanya? What is ego? What happens when we serve our ego? What is that like? I'm adding this in. This is not in the Tanya now. I'm just bringing Idol worshiping. Yes. Hundred points for you. Thank you. <laughs> I listen uh, to ego you. Is, <laughs> ego is like an idol, serving idols, right? It's like you're serving something other than God, serving yourself, serving whatever it is. So anger is a big deal. All to say that anger is a big deal, even though it's not a direct transgression, anger does not lead us anywhere good. Okay. My therapist will say though, sometimes anger does fuel us, right? Gotta bring it in. I'm like, I'm like, uh, I'm like, what's it called? Um, playing devil's advocate and also like, you know, anger does fuel us sometimes to do the things we need to get done, right? Sometimes that does serve a purpose, but you have to be very careful. You have to know once that anger stops serving that purpose, and if you take it too far, slippery slope, right? So anger has 151 fasts. Why? Because the, new, the number 151 is the numerical value of the word anger in Hebrew. Okay, should we do this together? What's anger in Hebrew? Ha'as. Okay, we have kaf, which is equivalent to 20. Right? We have ayin, which is equivalent to 70. We have samach, which is equivalent to 60. Right? That's 150. And then you have, this is the best. This is so Kabbalah style. And then you have one plus one for the value of the word itself. <laughs> what is the word again? Ka'as. Ka'as? Yeah. Kaf, ayin, saf. Kasaf. Kasaf. Okay. Kaas. Kaf ayin saf. 151. 150 plus one for the word itself. Actually, that's very used. It sounds funny, but it's used often in numerical value. Like you, you count the word as one. Okay, so 151 fast, because that's the word for anger in Hebrew. Are we not? Are we did we not? Did that math not work? 20 and 70s, 90. Yeah, 90 and 60s, 150. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're scaring me. All good, all good. I'm confused about the, the just before this, you, okay, you yeah, talked yeah. about the fasting, that it was not necessary, and then you started saying that it was necessary. So is, am I not okay, no. Okay, sorry. Um, it's not, it's never necessary. Fasting is never required or 
necessary. It is an addition, right? Like you said, it's a gift. So what I was trying to say before about the Kabbalah is that you don't find fasting anywhere in the code of Jewish law, right? We find fasting from the Kabbalah. So the Tanya is like a double, it's a double-edged, it's not really a sword, but it's, a, it's this and, right? The, the author wants us to know that fasting isn't required, but it is relatable. Like it does apply to us if we want it to. It's a this good thing only, to do. Basically what we're saying, it doesn't only apply to holy people. Even though it's not required, us lay people can also use fasting if we wanted to, to give that gift to Hashem. It applies to us as well, because you could think, oh, we're taking this quote from the Arizal and now the Arizal students are so holy, like how is this relatable to me, right? And the, and the author wants to tell you that yes, even though um, it's coming from the, the, the examples that we give for fasting are coming from holy people, it's still something that's relatable to us if we choose, but it's not required. It's not a halacha, it's not in the Torah. No. I mean, it's in the oral tradition. I mean, this is Torah, right? It's in here, but it's not in the five books of Moses. You're not going to find um, fasting as atonement. But why? In, in, the, in the Torah, we're talking about sacrifices. Remember, fasting is a substitute for the sacrifice. Right? And I actually just want to remind you, um, we, we're not going to talk about it here, but we did talk about it last week for our, our last class for a minute, and we're going to get there. I know we're going to get there, um, is that now, remember, the nowadays that we're talking about in the Tanya is Altareba nowadays, but now nowadays, in our present time, we are have a little bit of a weaker constitution, our bodies are weaker, so what did we say that we use as a substitution for fasting? Sadaka. Yeah, charity, right? So nowadays, we're going to talk about in the Tanya, I think we're going to get there, is that even fasting might be a little too hard for us, but now, but now I don't know if we can say that because there's such a thing as intermittent fasting and people fast all day long. So if you can intermittent fast for yourself, you can fast for God, but that's besides the point. But in general, we have weaker constitution. No one's doing it now. I guarantee you, no one is doing 151 fasts nowadays for getting angry. It's not, it's not happening nowadays. What I do envision happening is people giving charity for um, acting out, <laughs> as I want to say, right? Does that make sense? So, so keep that in mind as together, because fasting might not seem relevant to you. And this might be like, why are we even talking about this? But there is a substitution for fasting for us now, and that's charity. And there actually is the same way that the Arizal tells us how many days to fast. We also use kind of those same formulas for how much charity to give. It's not random. There are certain amounts of charity we give for certain things. Okay, that was a total side point. I mean, some people can't uh, fast. What then? Charity. Okay, so instead of fasting, you can- Instead of fasting, okay. exactly. Many people, we're not- even if you have a constitution that fasts, it's not a common thing for, for us now to use fasting as a, as a way to get closer to Hashem. 
I don't think it's a this generation thing. Well, what about the um, public fast days? What are those? Public, public fast days are completely different. We talked about that last class. What is public? What are public fast days? Public fast days are to avert a decree, right? That's why you. That's why you fast the fast of Esther. All those fasts that we commemorate are to commemorate the public community efforts to avert a decree. This, that has nothing to do with repentance. Okay. Public fasts have nothing to do with repentance, right? Oh, okay. I said that last time. So now, um, um, I think he gives another example here. Okay, he gives another example, like if you um, neglect a positive command, like prayer, let's say you forget to pray, forget to daven, um, then the Ariza would recommend 61 fast because 61 fast is a numerical value of the word ani, which is I, aleph, nun, yud, and that hints of the, what, of the energy of prayer. Okay, we're not gonna get into it, but basically every, every um, mistake or transgression, the Arizal would have a calculation of how many fasts to do to um, get back in God's good graces. It's very interesting though. If you, this is a side point, the Tanya does not talk about this, but for me, I just noticed that you actually fast almost more than double for anger than you do for actually not praying. Interesting, right? Not praying is an actual transgression. So that's interesting. I think it just brings home the point we were saying before, like how significant being angry really is. You know, it's really not a small thing. Okay, we are going to, in three minutes, finish this chapter. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then we'll do a meditation. And then next class, we can start, we will start chapter three. Okay. So what's the last and final set, section? Up until this point, we now know there are a number of roles that fasting has. Okay. We're going to review. We're going to go through all three roles that we know about now that in that we didn't only learn today, that we've learned previously, but this is going to give us a good kind of overview. Number one, what we actually just mentioned, public and personal fasts, which are not connected with chuva and are carried out to avert negative decrees. That's one use of fasting, right? Number two, personal fasts that are carried out to assist atonement the full expression of tshuva. This is the people who are using it to complete their atonement and to kind of um, take care of that suffering component of tshuva. You're with me? Number three, this is what we learned today. The personal fast carried out as a post-atonement gift to find favor in God's eyes. Okay, that's what we spent time talking about today. Now, at the, for the last couple of minutes, we're going to talk about the fourth role of fasting. And um, it is similar to the third role, but just a one additional step. Um, and what the Tanya is saying is that actually, in general, 
there is a secret power to fasting. It's like a secret superpower. Okay. So um, it comes again from the Jewish mystics from Kabbalah. That's where the source of this is, is that fasting is a very effective ritual. The Hebrew word is segula. Have you ever heard of a segula? Something that's like, like a ritual that brings about a revelation of blessing. So fasting has this superpower, this very effective ritual that brings about a revelation of blessed, supernal, divine favor. In Hebrew, it's ratzon ha'elyon. Okay? So fasting actually has this ability to tap into this super divine power of blessing from God. Okay? So we know already that, that fasting can be used to find favor in God's eyes because we know that from the sacrifices, right? That's, that's how we're using it instead of the sacrifice. So we know that it brings favor to God's eyes, but here we're saying that it's not only just favor, it's supernal divine favor, okay? Can you give, so can you give her a... Can you give a, an example? Do you know? Yes. I'm, I mean, I don't know if I can give an example, but I'm going to tell you what, what the time is referring to. Okay. So as, as Carrie is asking, what's the difference between divine favor and supernal divine favor, right? Like what's the difference between those two things? Um, going back for a second, when we talked, remember we talked about, um, just, it's so windy that there's all these crazy sounds. Um, we've talked about what the sin actually does, right, to, to us and to our soul. So back, going back there for a second, a sin doesn't only damage your soul, right? It has a negative effect on all the spiritual worlds. Remember we talked about that? How your actions really have effect not only in our physical world, but our spiritual world, even the highest spiritual world of Atsilas, right? This damage is repaired by the divine favor, right? Achieved through your post-atonement gift, right? So another thing that happens when you give this post-atonement gift to God is you're also like fixing, you know, those spiritual worlds that you kind of messed up, right? But that's, that's regular favor. Supernal divine favor is even higher than that. And that is the divine energy that transcends both the damage caused by the sin and the favor needed to repair it. Basically, the supernal divine favor is a light so powerful that it was never damaged in the first place. So what's happening? What's happening when we fast is we're tapping into this supernal divine favor that we get to bring this light into us and into the world that was never damaged. It's the secret of fasting. So when we're talking about the favor, the supernal favor, the regular supernal favor, we're repairing a light that was damaged. You understand? We're repairing a light that was already damaged. 
what the Tanya is saying is that more is happening here. Not only are we repairing the light that was already damaged, but we're also tapping into the light that is so high and spiritual and above and beyond that it was never damaged to begin with. So we're tapping into a light of Hashem that was never damaged. And that only happens through fasting. It's the secret power of fasting. You can only get to that divine light, that supernal divine light through fasting. Okay? Um, I'm just making sure I'm not missing anything. So the secret of fasting, so what's the secret of fasting? What's a special thing is that it brings supernal divine favor into the world, right? Into the world and, and into you. And um, and that happens when we go that extra, that extra step, right? You're, you're basically what happened to me, how I see it. It's not what the Tanya says, but to how I see it and how I translate it in my brain is that you are showing God, right? Remember what's fasting all about? You're showing God that you care enough to sacrifice your fat and your blood, right? Like we said in the beginning, like you're sacrificing, you're making yourself quite uncomfortable to, to find favor in his eyes and you care enough about him that you want to have this mutually um, desirable relationship, right? We don't just want to be forgiven. We want to have a mutually desirable relationship and you're willing to fast because of that. So you know what Hashem does? He says, oh, you, to me, it looks like you give me a gift, I'm now going to give you a gift. You gave me a piece of you that's, that's in living in a physical world is so hard and so important. I'm going to give you a gift. What's that extra special supernal divine favor is, is a light that was never tarnished. It was never blemished. It was never damaged. I'm going to give you a glimpse of that light. And that happens through fasting. And that is the end of chapter two. That is super profound. That very last right? part. Oh right? my God. Oh right? my God. Okay. We're for sure going to delve into it more. Um, but let's see. That We'll go into chapter three next class. We will take a few seconds just to ground ourselves. We'll do a quick meditation. I am going to be upfront with you guys. I might not be here next week. I have a friend's bar mitzvah that if I end up going, it's on Monday in Montreal. I know my life is crazy. Um, but part of my hesitation of starting up class again is I was like, what if I can't be consistent enough and I feel so bad? But I told myself, I said, it's okay because whenever we do it, it's good and you're going to be you're going to be okay with it. Right. <laughs> so I will let you know, um, if there's a chance we won't have class next week. Um, but I love it and enjoy it when we do it. And when you're here and when you give me an hour of your time, I'm so grateful. So, um, let's wiggle, wiggle around, get yourself in your body, take a deep breath, Gently close your eyes when you're ready. Okay, the first thing I want you to do is something that's very important um, before we even want to like affect change in our body or in our mind. 
we have to recognize and be okay with how we are right now. So I just want you to observe your body and your mind and just notice if there's anything out of sorts, uncomfortable, if any of anywhere in your body is holding some tension, don't try to do anything right now about it. Just pay attention to it, acknowledge it, notice it, tell whatever piece of you that you see it, it's important, I hear you, I see you. Okay, so let's just sit with that for a second. And now we can start to focus on our breath. And when you inhale, a nice big inhale, I want you to focus on the idea of expansion, right? Opening up your heart, your chest for receiving. And when we exhale, I want you to think about grounding yourself and releasing anything that doesn't serve you. Okay, so inhale, re open, receive. Exhale, ground, release. And do that a couple times at your own pace. Inhale, receive, open. Exhale, ground, release. If in the beginning you had observed some tension in any part of your body, Take a moment to breathe through that particular area. Be intentional. Like if you're feeling maybe some, some stress or some tension in your stomach or your chest, envision breathing through that area and opening up that area a little bit. Okay, hopefully we're feeling a little bit more grounded, a little bit more open, and we'll see, we'll talk about some food for thought. So nowadays, fasting can replace the post-atonement gift of a burnt offering, rendering you as desire, desirable to God, as pleasing and cherished to him as you were before your sin. So we're using this fasting as a gift to give God, to incur favor in his eyes. We don't want to just be forgiven. We want to be loved. We want to be wanted. We want God to be excited to be with us. And that's what fasting does. It's that extra special gift. And the mystical secret of fasting is that it brings supernal divine favor into the world. You give God a gift, he gives you a gift back. Just think about that for a minute. How does that feel when you think about it? Do you see it affecting your life in any way? Just food for thought, no right or wrong answer.
You can bring your attention back to your breath. Do a couple rounds of a good inhale, exhale. And now you can let go of your breath. Let it be at its natural rhythm. Take a minute to like wiggle your fingers and toes, come back to the space that you're in, be aware of your surroundings, move your body. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes.